pray. Lord, you tell us that we are to put on the armor of God and one piece of that armor is the belt of truth. And so we ask today that you would help us to put on the belt of truth as we come to your word, that you would apply it to us, that we would believe in it, that we would trust that it comes from you and that you never tell us a lie, but you always tell us true things. And as we come to it and trust in it, we pray that you would shape our lives to be conformed to the image of Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our commandment is the ninth commandment, as I've already told the children. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And what we've seen so far as we've gone through the Ten Commandments is that the commandments get to more than our actions, but they get to the issues of the heart. Jesus said in Matthew fifteen nineteen. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And you'll notice that those really fall along with the Ten Commandments in many ways. Speech reveals what's inside the human heart. And so we want to look at our speech this morning. And we're going to do so looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, if you want to turn there. In your Bibles, Paul writes, therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You may remember the movie A Few Good Men. It's been uh, some 20 years ago now that it came out on the big screen. It was the story of lowly Lieutenant Daniel Caffey, who was the prosecuting attorney in a murder case. who's played by Tom Cruise. And at a point in the murder trial, he decided to go after a particular man who was Colonel Nathan Jessup the base commander of Guantanamo Bay, because he was convinced that this man was actually the cause behind the murder. And so there's this dramatic scene, which you probably remember, where Lieutenant Caffey is probing and going after, and the temperature is rising, and his temper is flaring, and he's asking for the truth. And Colonel Jessup finally responds, you can't handle the truth, as only Jack Nicholas could say. Basically, Colonel Jessup, the character, had decided that people did not have a right to the truth. But instead, he had the right to change the truth to his own advantage. When we lie, when we bear false witness, basically what we've done is the same thing. We're claiming authority over the truth. That it's ours, that somehow we own it. And therefore, we can change it in whatever way that we want to. 
This commandment bearing false witness against our neighbor is a command that governs all of our speech, but it really challenges this notion that somehow I have authority over truth, that I can own it, that I can hide it, that I can manipulate it, that I can subvert it as I please. The reality is the Bible says the truth is not ours. We don't own it. God owns the truth. He owns it not only because He knows it, because all things are laid bare before Him, because He's ordained everything that happens before the foundation of the world, but also because Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. God Himself is truth. He owns truth. No one else does. Therefore, we don't have authority over it, and we certainly don't have the right to change it, manipulate it, subvert it in any other way. God is Lord of the truth. We can't create our own version of it, or you might say, rewrite the history book as we please. So the commandment here envisions actually a a courtroom setting, much like in the movie A Few Good Men. And in that courtroom setting, the witness is on the stand. And the witness is not to say false things against his neighbor. Now this was instituted back in ancient Israel long before CSI, long before our modern forensics. So the witness testimony in a trial was key. And therefore, a charge was only to be brought based on the witnesses, uh, the the, um, uh, character of two witnesses, the testimony of two or three witnesses. In other words, it couldn't be just one person accusing another of a crime. It had to be multiple people who witnessed it, multiple people who saw it and can give corroborating testimony to one another. God wants his people to be truthful. He wants his people to speak the truth. That's what he says here in Ephesians. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And so we're going to look at several things here. First of all is this. God makes us people of truth. God makes us people of truth. When he says, therefore, having put away falsehood, he's referring to some past action. Having done this in the past, having put away falsehood, now how is that possible for people to put away falsehood? We go back up to verse 22 through 24. It tells us the answer. Paul says, you are to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He's using this image of putting off and putting on a garment here. And it almost sounds like Paul is telling us that we need to Make ourselves into new people. Now he uses this allegory or this um, imagery on several of occasions of putting off and putting on. And what he's referring to is the fact that when we were born, we were created in Adam. In other words, Adam was our representative in the garden. And being in Adam, everything that was true of Adam is true of us. We are corrupt. We are guilty. We have a nature that is a sinful nature. And so when we're born into the world, we're born in Adam with a sinful nature and a propensity to lie. We are spiritually dead. But when someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, that connection between us and Adam is broken. 
So that now we are in Christ. We are united to Jesus. Jesus dwells within us. And so what he says is, he puts the old person to death. That person is crucified. And now we're alive in Jesus. The old man is dead. The enslavement to sin, including lying, is broken. We're set free from the compulsive desire to lie. The new self is who we are now, and we're being renewed in the image of God. We've been made a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. So that now we're being, as he says in verse 24, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's not that we're sinless creatures now or sinless persons, but rather being alive in Christ, we're able not to sin. We're able not to lie, not to bear false witness, but rather able to tell the truth. So what Paul is saying here is that we've been created in Adam, but we've been set free in Christ, and now we're able to live in a new state of grace. Putting the old practices off and putting on the new practices. It's very similar to a slave who has been purchased and set free. And if that slave were to continue to live as if the old master reigned over him, giving himself to the same practices that a slave does, giving himself to the same mindset that a slave has, well, then he'll live as a slave and still be in bondage. But having been set free, if he now lives as if he is a free man, well, then he'll live as a free man. And that's the very thing that Paul is saying here. Because this is true. Because the old man is dead by faith in Christ. Because you are alive in Jesus. Now put off sinful ways. And put on the righteousness of God. And friends, it took the death of Jesus. The death of God Himself to free us from sin like that. That's not just something that God says or the Apostle Paul says, go do this. It took the death of the Son of God on the cross to free us from the bondage to living out sin. So that when He commands us this, He's saying, this has cost me everything to give it to you. This freedom has cost me the price of my Son. And so when I command you to put off lying and to put on truth, I'm telling you to do so as one who has been one, whose victory has been accomplished by the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us this in a very clear way in Colossians 3, verses 9 and 10. He says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Friends, it was a lie that sent the world into darkness. And praise be to God in Christ that we've been set free from the lie. He set us free from being liars. He set us free from the father of lies. That we are now captive to Christ who is truth incarnate. Do You see what Jesus is doing here. He's making a whole new humanity based on the truth. He's making a whole new humanity based on relationships where people tell the truth. This is what we were created for. We're created in God's image. 
And we're created for relationships where people tell the truth to each other. People don't lie to each other. People don't deceive each other. It's what we all long for in relationships. In fact, it's the only way that the world works. You have to trust your mechanic so that when you go pay him for services, you get in your car, you believe that when you drive down the road, you're not going to crash and your wheels aren't going to fall off. You have to trust your doctor before you put that pill in your mouth. You have to trust your spouse that they will always be faithful to you. Right? There's so many people in the world that we must trust, our pastor, our parents, the chef who makes us the food at the restaurant, the trade partners in business, politicians, lawyers. Unless we trust people, the world doesn't work. We're made for this. And do you see what Jesus is doing is making us people of the truth so that we are now being recreated in the image of God. So that the very thing we're designed for is the very thing that we live out. So that we put on this righteousness. I said in the very beginning at the first sermon of this series that the blessed life comes, yes, through faith in Jesus Christ, but it's through faith in Jesus Christ that we live out the commandments in a life the way God designed. And when we do, we experience the blessed life that He has for us. We're made for life where there's fidelity in relationships and lies abuse relationships. We long for relationships where there's truth-telling. And Jesus set us free for that. Friends, if we don't understand this reality that's by grace, it's by grace that this happens within us, then this commandment is reduced and all the other commandments are reduced to mere moralism. Don't lie because it's bad to lie. No, don't lie because Jesus died for you to make you a person of truth. It's grace that accomplishes this in every one of us. And when we do grasp the gospel in this way, we realize that what God is doing is making us into authentic people. People who are online in social media context are often accused of putting out a false persona. You develop your personal profile. Usually if you pick out the nicest picture that you can find of yourself, you say wonderful glowing comments about yourself. People on dating websites are always uh, those who love adventure. They are fun-loving people. They have great sense of humor. Nobody puts the ugly stuff in there, right? I have chronic bad breath, right? You don't see that on a personal profile on Facebook or a dating website. But it's not just people who are online who have these false personas. The reality is we all do this. Everybody has their false persona, the public personality that they want everybody in the world to see, and everybody has the private reality. And the reality is the truth of the gospel should make Christians of all people in the world most honest about who we are. Is it not the sufficient grace of Jesus Christ that declares us forgiven of sins, that declares that we are righteous in Jesus Christ, that declares that we are adopted into the family of God, that declares that we are loved 
perfectly before the foundation of the world and will be loved for all of eternity. Isn't it that reality? The fact that God Himself has died for us. That God Himself loves us. That God Himself approves of us. That we are able to be honest and say, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I failed at that. Friends, when we are made people of the truth, it's only because the gospel of grace comes into our life in a profound and powerful way to set us free. But not only does God make us people of the truth, but God instructs us how to speak. Look in verse 29 here. Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths, out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Again, Paul is going back to the negative and to the positive, to putting off and to putting on. And what should characterize our speech? Well, we're to put off corrupting talk. Corrupting talk, he says in verse 29. Literally, it says this. You must not let every rotten word go out of your mouth. Rotten. On a number of occasions in the New Testament, it refers to rotten trees. It refers to rotten fruit. And it refers to rotten fish. It stinks and it's filled with disease that brings rot in relationships. Now, this uh, verse here, verse 29, can certainly refer to a variety of speech patterns. And definitely the commandment deals with all harmful speech. But we want to focus here on lying for a few minutes. And one of the things about lies is that they harm people. They wound people. That's why the commandment says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Because it harms your neighbor. And lying words come in a lot of different forms. Let me list a few for you. Certainly they're the white lies, the little fibs that we tell. We think that they don't have any consequence to them. There's cheating. That's a form of lying. There's failing to keep our promises. Of course, there's gossip and slander, which is really seeking to harm someone's reputation so that now other people look at them in a different light so that we reshape the way in which other people look at this individual. And it may be partly true. It may be all true, but its intention is really to harm. One theologian puts it this way. Perhaps the one spreading gossip is not lying, but he or she is being untruthful, saying things that are true, but in the context of slander is deceitful. The neighbor's mistakes, faults and shortcomings are discussed in minute detail. People realize this kind of chatter gets them an attentive audience. For it is a universal phenomenon that we would rather hear something bad about our neighbor than something good. And something dirty always sticks long after the conversation has died. Gossip and slander, harm. We can also misquote people. We take their words and we twist them. Maybe a witness on the witness stand might do this. Maybe they would use words out of context to put a different kind of spin on them. There's half-truths that we might say. We withhold the whole truth because the half-truth presents the picture that I want to be reality. Sometimes we're merely silent toward the truth. You might think of a witness who doesn't come forward 
when there is a trial and someone's life is at stake. Or sometimes we're silent and we just allow a lie to be perpetuated as it circles around the community. Then there's speculation. You know, in the absence of clear information, the human mind is great at speculating, developing uh, sometimes even conspiracy theories. This Malaysian airline flight, there's been all sorts of conspiracy theories in the media and online about what might have happened to it. But speculation is not necessarily based in fact. Usually what happens is it's based in a few facts and we take those few facts and we extrapolate all sorts of data and information from them. And usually it's based on our presuppositions, our prejudices, what we want to be the case, what we wish was the case, or how we might even want to injure someone else. And we end up concocting scenarios about other people that shapes how others view them. We assume the worst about people and we share it with others and we influence their thinking. And the question that we need to ask when we begin to speculate is, am I seeking the truth or am I seeking ammunition against my enemy? So speculation is another. Another one is caricaturing other people. Maybe we don't like something about someone else. We don't like their views. We don't like the way that they conduct themselves. And before long, one of the things that we do is we begin to assume everything about them is wrong. This is one of the things that's a problem with the media today that covers politics. One side will look at a politician and say, that politician does this wrong. I don't like their views here. Everything that they do is wrong. And heaven forbid that the news media actually say, what that person did on this particular situation was right. We always want to put a spin on it to caricature someone else rather than give them credit. There's exaggerations. Sometimes we exaggerate our accomplishments. Sometimes we exaggerate others' failings. We tend to build things up as being worse than what they really are, as being a bigger problem than what it really is. You might hear people say, I've heard lots of people talking. Lots of people are talking about this and lots of people are upset. Reality, it may be one, maybe two people. But in order to get our point across that this is a significant problem and I don't agree with this, we'll say lots of people don't agree with it. See, all these are corrupting talk, harmful speech that spreads like wildfire and does its damage. No wonder Jesus says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. So Paul here says that we are to put off corrupting talk, but we're to put on edifying words. Verse 29 goes on to say, only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear only. We're only to speak words that build other people up. Lies harm, but truth heals. And he says we're to do this as fits the occasion, or you might say as the need arises. We should be there with the truth. We should be there with the truth as the need arises in someone's life for them to hear the truth. 
few ways that we do that or should do that. We should guard our neighbor. One of the ways we guard our neighbor is by refusing to listen to gossip and entertain lies. It's easy to listen. The book of Proverbs tells us that the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down in the inner parts of the body. It tastes delicious. But as soon as someone begins to speak gossip or slander, we as God's people, people of truth, should say, I'm sorry, I won't listen to this. I will not entertain it. And guard our brother or sister's reputation. We should also promote unity with the truth. You know, guarding the truth really is good for the whole community of the church or a family or a business or anything. Lies are like cancer to a community. But verse 25 tells us very clearly that we are to put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. We're connected as the body of Jesus Christ. We're all different parts of the body. And therefore, to speak lies against the body or in the context of the body is actually like self-inflicted wounds. To guard and protect the unity of the people of God, a word well spoken brings life and healing to the whole body. Also, strengthening the heart. Strengthening the heart. Proverbs 16.24 says, Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Gracious words are literally beneficial words, words that build individuals up. Not mere flattery, but truth that is spoken about the way in which God is at work in someone else and you recognize it. You see the powerful work of grace in someone else. You see how they're using your gifts. You see how the fruit of the Spirit is being worked out in them. You see how they're people of integrity. You see how they're standing up for the truth. And you want to come along and exhort them and say, brother or sister, I recognize this in you and I'm so encouraged by the way in which you honor Jesus. We're strengthening people's hearts in service to the Lord. And finally this, edifying words, steady the mind. They steady the mind. We all go through periods of doubt. We all go through times in which we feel as though maybe the gospel isn't true or maybe it doesn't apply to me or maybe, just maybe, I've sinned too much, too greatly. Sometimes we just wonder, does God still love me today? And it's when a brother or sister comes along and speaks the truth of the gospel to us that it steadies the mind so that we're thinking of true things. Jesus says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We are to speak those kinds of words that build one another up so that their faith in Christ is steadied. Proverbs 18.21 says death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. That's the very thing Paul is talking about here. We have death and we have life in the power of our words. How will we use them? And finally this, God speaks words of healing to us. Not only does He set us free to be people of truth, not only does He instruct us how we are to use our tongue, but he also speaks words of healing 
to us. Verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. God in Christ has spoken a word of forgiveness to His people. He has declared your sins are taken away as far as the east is from the west. Now to speak forgiveness means that God must hold two things together. One, truth. The truth about who we are. And love. Love for sinners. Truth. What's the truth about us? We ask the question, what's the truth about why we lie? We get hurt and we get angry and we want to strike back at people. We want to protect ourselves from embarrassment or shame. We want to make ourselves look better. We want to get our wishes. These are all the things that Christ knows about us. And He declares that to us as true. And yet He also says that it's His love for us that led Him to the cross. You know, if you think about it, Jesus was tempted with all of those things too. Wasn't Jesus hurt and angry and He could have struck back? Didn't Jesus have a holy instinct to protect Himself against the shame of bearing our sin? Wasn't He tempted to bow down before Satan so that He didn't appear weak? Didn't He cry out, Father, take this cup from Me? You see, it was His love for us that would enable Him to speak the truth about us yet go to the cross for us. In the cross of Christ, He holds together truth and love perfectly. And the reality is for the Christian, for the one who claims the cross for himself or herself, we are called to do the same thing. We're called to look at each other and say, I know the truth about you. You're a sinner just like I am. And I've seen it. But I love you anyway. And I love you so much, I will guard my tongue. I will not say gossip. I will not speak slander. I will not misrepresent you. I will not speculate about what's going on in your life. Rather, I will speak words that edify and build you up in Jesus Christ. In a moment, we're coming to the Lord's table. It's a table of fellowship with each other, a table of fellowship with Jesus Christ. And of all places where we ought to be able to hold together truth and love, it's at the table, at the dinner table. Where we know that what Jesus says about us is true, and yet He loves us deeply with an infinite affection. And when we leave here today, we'll be able to not only experience the love that He has for us, but to give it away to others in the way that we speak. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise You that You love us so dearly that though You know every truth about us, You know every misspoken word, You know the affections of our hearts, You know the lies that we have believed and that we have perpetuated. And yet You will not let us go. 
And so we pray today as we come to your table that you would give us a deep abiding joy in the cross, a deep abiding certainty that you have paid for our sins, a deep abiding confidence in your grace so that we would be those people who treat one another as you have treated us, bearing the truth in love. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.